Today on Peace Talks Radio, we explore the often conflicted space around the inevitability of our own death, or the death of our loved ones. What can we do to help those dying make a more peaceful passage? The best answer is not what the family should do, it's how they should be. What happens when we are merely in presence with deep respect and empathy for the dying person? And when faced with our own mortality, how can we find more peace with that? It's it's sometimes difficult to speak to the experience because I will say that I could feel myself getting closer to death. And there was a, I had a deep sense of peace around that process. Also, in general, how can we reduce the fear around the topic of death? That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others, in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. On today's program, we'll try to get inside the conflicted space that many are reluctant to talk about. That moment in our lives when either we or our loved ones are dying. If we're attending to the dying, there's often conflict inside ourselves or among family members about how to do it just right to help the one dying to have a peaceful passage. And if it's us that are dying, what can we do to make our own passage peaceful? Maybe leave those we care about in a more peaceful place. And how can we create a safe and supportive place to talk about death earlier in our lives? I recently watched the 2007 film Evening, based on the book by Susan Minot. After a little dream sequence, the film opens with about an 80-year-old woman in her bed at home, apparently in the dying stage. Mom? Vanessa Redgrave plays her. Her name is Anne, the mom of two daughters who are at her bedside. Mom. The daughters are played by Natasha Richardson and Tony Collette. Hello. Hi, Mom. She keeps saying, where's Harris? Who's Harris, Mom? Harris was my first mistake. Your first mistake is like your first kiss. You never forget it. Shh, just rest now, okay? Mom, look at me, look at me. Try to focus. The film bounces back and forth between the 1950s and the present day, as Anne remembers the long-ago weekend wedding of her good friend Lila. Anne has a brief passionate encounter with a man named Harris at the wedding, an encounter that haunts her right up to her final moments. The film presents that long-ago drama, of course, but in the present-day scenes, it also provides a good snapshot of a family confronting the moment of death and all the mysteries and conflicted feelings that come with it. Later, the daughters clash over how much weight to give their mother's dying bed life review. It seems to me that you're counting on Mom to have been as unfulfilled as you are, and I'm not going to let you... dare you? I'm not going to let you badger her on her deathbed about supposed old miseries that are probably, in fact, just fever dreams. Who are you to tell me I'm unfulfilled? Okay, so you're fulfilled and I'm not. From the film Evening, let's cut to a slice of real life in July of 2011. I ended my skiing. 
in Montreal. This is my 90-year-old Aunt Mary, in much the same stage as the Anne character in the film Evening, bedridden, on oxygen, not taking much food, and recalling for me her short-lived skiing days as a young woman traveling the world with the Red Cross. I skied in Bavaria, of course. And I went to Davos, Germany. That was a nice experience. Yeah, I think we have a picture of you skiing in Germany. Well, they all look alike, of course. My Aunt Mary had been moving methodically toward her final passage for a couple of months in an assisted care facility in Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., where my family had lived. All of us were gone from the region by 1997. We'd all been back to visit Mary, of course, but in her present condition of health, she made it clear that she didn't want anyone in the family to make a special trip to see her. She'd been talking regularly with my father, her brother, on the phone. My mom and dad were living in North Carolina, and my dad at 88 then wasn't really able to travel to see her. On the phone with him, Mary was complaining about her nursing care. She plainly said she was afraid. But she was kind of scattered on the phone, so my father believed that dementia was setting in, and that Mary wasn't who we knew her to be anymore, and that perhaps we should honor her wish to remain unvisited by the family. But ultimately, I couldn't stay away, largely because, in doing research for this program, I had encountered a film created by New Mexico hospice nurse Camille Adair. It's called Solace, Wisdom of the Dying, and it convinced me that someone from my family should go visit. My schedule was the most flexible, so in late July 2011, I went. I don't think I'd have known how to be with my Aunt Mary in her dying stage if I hadn't seen this film, Solace. It features interviews with many people with terminal diagnoses who wanted to share details of their final stage most of whom have passed away since the film's release in 2008. I learned that in these last 65 days, I love love. None of us knows where he, she, or it is going to go. <laughs> it's all, a, it's all a, new, a new picture that you just have to figure out. I don't think you have to even figure it out. It comes as it comes. And one of the things I've been going through is the sort of the, um, the feeling that I'm a burden on people is very difficult, particularly for someone like me who's always been very independent and has always, you know, sort of made my own decisions, was going to do what I was going to do when I wanted to do it. That's been very difficult. You heard the voices of Ricardo Vidort, Anne Dosberg, and Kathy Stanwyck. The film Solace also includes interviews with writers, philosophers, and other medical professionals who commented on the dying process, like physician and author of Healing Words, Larry Dossie. I remember many families wanting to know from me as the internist caring for their dying loved one, well, what should we do when we go to the bedside? People get very concerned that they're going to behave inappropriately. And almost always, the best answer is not what the family should do. It's how they should be. What happens when we are merely in presence with deep respect and empathy for the dying person? A lot of us think that we have to be sort of know-it-alls when it comes to behaviors around a dying person. We need to provide them with something. Well, this turns everything upside down. 
they're teaching us. We're not teaching them at that moment. They're the one who is closer to death, not ourselves. And they see more clearly than we will ever see until we get to that point. And this is a cause for immense humility in caregivers. We have this notion that we just have to do something. That is the most injurious idea ever to appear in caregiving for the dying. This idea that we have to have the answers. Uh, The thing that we're called upon to do more than anything, I think, is to be empathic and to try to identify as fully as we can with their needs. Uh, If we can do that, then the doing will take care of itself. Today, we'll hear more clips from this important film and talk with its creator, Camille Adair, and two of her hospice colleagues, Denise Cope, who herself wrote a useful book called Dying, A Natural Passage, and hospice doctor, Corrine Trone. Camille Adair told me, frankly, that when she started working with the dying as a hospice nurse, she at first went into a dark space, finding it difficult to absorb the intensity of the feelings of everyone going through this dying process, those dying and the survivors. But after a couple of years, she said something changed. I started to change inside, and I started to really experience the beauty, and I started to really um, witness a lot of what felt like healing at the bedside at the end of life. I started to see people sharing their wisdom, which translated into um, what I saw as fundamental teachings that we, the living, really need. And I started to feel like the dying were sort of our version of untouchables, that they were sort of kept in the closet when really we should be bringing them into the center of our human community and we needed to be learning from them. Um, as they approach the end of their lives, as they're gathering all the wisdom and they're finding what's had meaning for them and sharing that, sharing their stories. And that's when I really felt like um, in order for me to process what I was experiencing, I needed to have an outlet. And I felt like film was probably just the best medium to get it out to the largest audience. Larry Dossey, in your uh, documentary, Camille calls on the medical profession to really change the paradigm from seeing death, as he put it, as the enemy or death as an abject failure of everything. And let me add to that. You hear this in in the language about dying. You know, I'm going to fight this disease or someone lost their battle with cancer. What what would it start to sound like differently, Denise? I think it's critical that we as a culture, and you just brought up examples of it, that we change our articulation around the dying process. And when I first became aware of that was when Terry Schiavo was dying. And at the same time, the Pope was dying. And I remember hearing on the news, they said, the Pope is failing. And I went, the Pope is not failing. Number one, he chose into no extraordinary measures. He's not failing. He is progressing in his natural process of dying and is embracing it. And We need to see that death is not a failure. People are not failing. They are progressing. They're not getting worse. They are moving along in their their trajectory or their disease process. We need to take those words out of our articulation about dying. Right. In the film, uh, the jazz singer um, Chris Calloway supposes what if that moment of passage of death is as thrilling as anything you've ever experienced in your life. And it made me think, you know, if most religions preach that the soul is passing to a better place from life in this world, as they seem to, then then why is there so much sadness and fear associated with death? Corrine Trone? 
I was thinking about making the distinction between fear and sadness, because certainly we can put them together, but really the sadness is about the loss and about change and, and about how our lives are never going to be the same. We've lost somebody, some big integral part of, of what we've known. But the fear is a really different thing, and it, it, it comes as its root really in our human survival instincts, right? It's, a, it's just a root peace. That means that we're always fearful, sort of vulnerable in the world, because ultimately somewhere we know we're going to die or things are going to happen that we can't control. Um, and when we separate those two, at least we can begin to look at the sadness is just going to be there. Sadness is grief. Grief is a natural process, has its own course, will resolve in its own time. But the fear is a piece that if uh, the more we can understand about what those root pieces are and the and the experiential pieces that we've built around them, then the more we can accept things. What we see so often when, when somebody is really in the process of thinking about more treatments, thinking about more serious chemotherapy or other things, and it is that struggle, that fight that they're you know in, in this battle with. And when they come to that place of shifting that and changing and really thinking in terms of, oh, I'm not going to do that piece anymore. I'm not fighting anymore. I'm really going to just live this moment, be present here now for whatever time there is. It is an incredible shift that happens that allows a, a peace that comes inside and all around them. When there's not this focus externally to go to the next doctor, to seek this care, to do this treatment, it, it totally transforms the situation internally and externally for them. Mm -hmm. We see that a lot. Once I... I knew that, that the cancer was definitely terminal and it was going to be a fairly short period of time, I started thinking about doing a project. And so what I decided to do was to develop a project that I'm calling an acknowledgement project. Dearest family and friends, knowing, really knowing that your days on this earth are numbered is a true gift. I know you find that hard to believe, but it truly is a blessing. We all live our lives as though there will always be tomorrow to do the things we want to do and say. Knowing my days are numbered has given me the opportunity to receive love and acknowledgement from you and allow me to live in the now in a way that was never available to me before. First, you could write to someone and acknowledge them for the contribution they've made to the world. Second, you could write and acknowledge them for the contribution they've made to your life personally. Finally, you could clean up a bad feeling or resolve an issue that has been plaguing a relationship. So many times we let a relationship go bad or ignore problems because there will always be tomorrow to fix it. Don't wait, do it today. So let the ripple become a wave. If each of you participates in the project, think of how we will contribute to our lives, the lives of friends, and what we truly only have, the moment of now. Much love. Again, Kathy Stanwyck from the film Solace, the Wisdom of the Dying, who died during the filming. With my Aunt Mary in Virginia, I'm not sure that she was able to make that same transition that Kathy and Corrine spoke of. She had made the decision not to see any more doctors and not to have heroic measures taken to keep her alive, but it was taking weeks and weeks. As I said, seeing the film Solace and my partner Melissa's urging convinced me to visit Mary. I sent word to the hospice people who were handling Mary that I'd be coming, and I wasn't sure what to expect. But it wasn't long after I arrived that I figured out that my dad didn't have it quite right. 
The Mary we all knew, a bit curmudgeonly, with a dry sense of humor and a sharp wit and sometimes sharp tongue, was still very much in this waning body. She couldn't see well at all anymore, and her body had weakened to the point of her not even being able to shift her weight in bed. This left her being completely at the mercy of the overburdened nursing staff there and hospice workers who kept changing throughout the week. Not typical, I'm told, by Camille Adair, but since Mary couldn't see very well, she had a very hard time of keeping track who was who and who was in the room with her. She was not happy with how things were going, but that was so, so Mary. They ate us. Well, they ate me. They say I have a big mouth. Mm. Well, maybe it's because I ask questions. I don't know. Well, I just think they're not used to somebody being as honest as you. Well, you know, I'm not buddy-buddy with them. I feel that they are here to serve me, not me to serve them. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? I concocted some kind of two-wordy response about how hard it is for nurses of the dying, which Mary knew all too well. She'd spent her career in the administration wing of the Red Cross, winning service medals for tours in post-war Germany and in wartime Korea and Vietnam. Most of the time in this week I spent with her, almost immediately after complaining about the nursing treatment, Mary would say, I know how hard a job it is. Anyway, instead of trying to fix things with some sort of rationalization in response to Mary's rhetorical question, I should have just kept it a short, neutral answer and stayed present, like Larry Dossie recommended. I did better as the week went on, sitting near my aunt as she drifted in and out of fitful sleep, and when she was awake, just listening to her stories, her life review, and keeping a washcloth for her head, very wet and cool at all times. Now that feels good. Feels good? Good. For about five minutes. Yeah. That's the best we can do right now, is just like take care of the five minutes at hand, huh? Right, oh, I'm not complaining, I'm solving it. No, I know. I'm just, I'm, re- I'm restating the obvious. Now, lest you wonder, I recorded some of these visits because Mary had said more than once, you should make a documentary about this. I don't know if she wanted me to blow the whistle on the nurses she thought were mishandling her, or if she just knew that I'd be interested in telling the story of her passing to help others understand it all better. Before I had arrived, Mary had talked with my father over the phone about how ready she was to die, but I guess saying you're ready and really letting go are two different things. She gave me instructions about alternative funeral arrangements. If Arlington National Cemetery botched her reservation to be buried next to her mom and dad, my grandfather and grandmother. The one I'm talking about is the memorial garden for Emanuel Church on the Hill. Right, Emanuel Church on the Hill, yeah. That's my church. Right. But you'd still prefer to be in Arlington if it doesn't become a hassle for everything. Exactly. Okay, that's clear. That's good to know. Well, that's because Mother and Daddy is there. Yeah. She tried to make sure I knew where all the important papers were. I took care of it at the time. And I think all the paperwork is in the folder. Yeah, I I saw the folder. I think it's all there. All the authorizations and such. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. I, I'm not worried. I'm just trying to anticipate 
where you can find things. And she spontaneously, without my prompting, told the tale of being on vacation with her parents, my grandparents, when she got a call that her sister, my other Aunt Martha, had died suddenly and unexpectedly. He told me, standing there at the telephone, oh, that was hard, Paul. That was hard. And then I had to go tell Mother. Yeah. It was one of the hardest days ever. Well, couldn't get there much harder. No. I think my Aunt Mary was, bit by bit, becoming detached from her life in a way that hospice nurse Denny Cope told me about. As long as we stay attached to life, there is suffering. Attachment creates suffering. And it's like the proverbial river of life. It's flowing, and if we are holding on to the banks and clutching and staying attached to the the sides of the river, we're being buffeted by the rapids and by the flow of the river. And once we let go of that attachment and we'll allow the river to carry us, that's when the ease and the grace come in. In a moment, more with our panel, more from the film Solace, Wisdom of the Dying, and more of the end-of-life story of my Aunt Mary and of my mother, who passed away just two weeks after Aunt Mary. When we continue to explore making peace around death and dying, today on Peace Talks Radio, right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes going back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Today we're exploring how those dying and their survivors can find more peace and how we can talk more openly about this inevitable event in our lives. I don't know what happens when people die. I can't seem to grasp it as hard as I try It's like a song I can hear playing right in my ear That I can't sing, I can't help listening And I can't help feeling stupid standing around Crying is the easier down Cause I know that you'd rather we were dancing Dancing our sorrow away Right on dancing There's nothing you can do about it anyway That's part of Jackson Brown's thoughtful meditation on death in his song, For a Dancer. Before the break, I was telling the story of my Aunt Mary, who in 2011 was ready to die but just couldn't. She said she didn't want family with her at this stage, 
but I went to her bedside anyway, just to keep a cool wet cloth on her face, a cool glass of water near her lips, and listen to whatever came up in the review of her own life. I also asked her a couple of questions of my own. But what would be the great appreciations of your life? What are your favorite things, would you say? In life? Yeah. The place, the family. The family? We were raised in a very loving family, but a very disciplined family. I don't mean whipping discipline, but we had very high standards of our behavior. We were a no-nonsense family. We did things together, and we... My father went out of his way to plan things for us to do together. But do you believe you'll see Martha and Mom and Dad again? I mean, do you believe you'll see them when you pass? I don't know. I don't know. I know, I heard you. I don't think we do know. I just can't concentrate on that anymore. It's okay, no need. What will be, will be, you know? That's right. After six days, I left my Aunt Mary. She thanked me, and I thanked her. We exchanged I love yous. And I left guessing I'd probably not see her again. I asked the staff for more hours of hospice care each day for her and suggested they continue to use morphine to ease her body pain and help her sleep. Once again to our panel of guests on the program today, hospice nurses Camille Adair and Denise Cope and hospice physician Corrine Trone, all from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Camille Adair is director of the film Solace, Wisdom of the Dying. Denise Cope, the author of Dying, A Natural Passage. And then in the course of being supported in where they are, They come to this place of letting go of that attachment, and they surrender into the inevitability. And with that comes what Corrine just referred to, this incredible peace. Drops in, and they come into a fuller place of living the last days of their life rather than suffering. Well, Stephen Levine, in your documentary, Camille Adair, says most of us don't really fear death. We fear pain. I definitely think there is some truth to that. And I also think, you know, we fear the unknown and we fear what we imagine might be possible um, in the physical body around pain. And so I do think a lot of of fear of death has to do with fear of the unknown, which which is why I'm a big advocate for talking ahead of time about what our wishes might be and having those conversations. you know, I certainly am not planning on going anywhere soon, but you never know. And I have two young adult daughters, and they're very aware of what my wishes are um, should something change regarding my health status. Well, you actually recently told me you had a severe infection with a routine procedure that puts you in danger. That's right. What's changed in your life since that? During a recent hospitalization where I had a near-death experience, one of the things I realized is that there were sort of two parts of me. Um, and so it's, it's sometimes difficult to speak to the experience because I will say 
that I could feel myself getting closer to death. And there was a, I had a deep sense of peace around that process. There was another part of me that I sort of would associate or attribute to my personality in this world. And, and that's where things got tricky. So the part of my personality that is a nurse, that is a caregiver, that can be an overachiever, that likes to have a sense of control. A fixer. That's right, a fixer. I mean, it's the sort of the typical wounded healer nurse archetype that is a very interesting um, framework to learn from for me in my life. And so I really saw a lot of that stuff come up. And so I think that um, when in terms of peacemaking for me after that experience, what I've learned is to really, um, I have even less fear of death on one hand, because I could feel what it was like being at that level of deep peace as my body was changing. On the other hand, I got to see my raw humanity, and I got to see how difficult vulnerability was for me in those times when things were slipping away and I was trying to maintain a sense of control about who I was in the world. And so for me, a lot of that now has to do with just accepting what is, even my own humanity, even the fact that, yes, I do have these tendencies and this will be my life's work. And so rather than having the expectation that I will die perfectly, (laughs) um, that it's more about accepting um, the fact that, you know, I will make mistakes or it won't always look pretty as I move through my humanity and really allowing, working on vulnerability. I think that's probably one of the greatest things that I can do, at least for myself, based on my wiring. You're talking about forgiveness, too. Well, and I think for me, sometimes forgiveness feels like something has been wrong. And I think that's how hard I Mm. have to work at this is to actually think of it more in terms of acknowledging what is accepting Mm -hmm. what is that even in my raw imperfection there's beauty in that Um, but back to the practical issues what I would like to say is um, there is a document called the five wishes that is actually um, a legal document in the state of New Mexico and Denis recently shared um, at a conference Uh, advanced care planning and talked about the five wishes. So I'll turn that over to you, Denis. Denis Cope? The five wishes, I think, is the most comprehensive of all the end-of-life care documents out there, simply because it includes everything. It has the living will, and you get to talk about, well, you get to talk about how you want to, what you want done for you when you are faced with impending death. Do you want to be put on a a ventilator? Do you want IVs? Do you want heroic measures? And, you know, it details what those are. It also asks who do you want as your durable power of attorney, which normally those are two separate documents. But And the durable power of attorney is the person who will make medical decisions for you in the case of incapacity to make those choices. And you certainly need to have had a conversation with whoever you appoint to say, these are my wishes. And within the five wishes, you go through what you would like. And then you get to talk about how you want to be cared for, not just what don't you want, but what do you want? And so you get to talk about, I would like somebody there. I would like this type of music. I would like, and and I have to say, there is a part of me that has talked about how the five wishes for me, it was clearly written by a living person 
and not a dying person because it talks about how people want massage and want their hands held and want this and and constant presence. And what I have seen over time that as we are truly in our dying process, we want to be less interacted with. We may want presence in the room, and sometimes we don't even want that. The minute presence leaves the room, somebody goes out to answer the door, fix a meal, that's when we can get out of our bodies. So um, it's often filled out from the eyes of the living who project what it must they might want when they're dying, and the dying really have a different experience of what they want. Um, but it is a way of looking at all the aspects of dying, the legal, the personal, the familial, for one, of, for one of a better word to me, if we don't have a blood family that we want involved, we certainly have our family, the people we're in closest relationship with. How do we want them to be with us? And how do we want our community to be there? So it covers all those aspects. And it's one document, you sign it, and you have it witnessed. There has to be a witness for it. It doesn't have to be notarized. And then that can be copied and be in – I have – I am actually um, the power of attorney for one woman, and it's in her hospital chart. And so whenever she gets readmitted to the hospital, that gets comes into her current chart, and it always stands as a legal document. She doesn't have to fill them out over and over and over again. And you can have copies wherever you are. Give one to your physician. Give one to each family member. Mm-hmm. It becomes very comprehensive and compact and is so – it's just comprehensive. So it's sort of a workbook, I think, yeah. that you can really work it through. But the one thing we were, I was thinking about is, you know, you go through that whole process, and I think anticipating things or trying to anticipate things makes a lot of sense. And then you have to accept that it is going to be what it is, right. and that in the given moment, you may not want that to be that way. And right. so you have to be able to adapt to it as it goes along, too. Immediately after leaving my Aunt Mary's bedside in Virginia, my next destination was North Carolina, where my family was gathering to mark that year's 60th anniversary of my parents' marriage. My mom, Audrey Ingalls, had not been feeling well herself. She'd lost about 20 pounds in the months leading up to the reunion party and was having a hard time keeping food down. In the Solace movie I'd seen, Denise Cope said a person changing their relationship with food and dropping a lot of weight was a definite predictor for the dying stage. But my mom had wriggled her way back out of so many harrowing health challenges over the last 15 years, no one in our family really thought she was about to enter her final days. She appeared frail and a bit unsteady, but smiling broadly for her 60th anniversary reunion party just a few days later. Look at all the pictures! (laughs) (laughs) There have been little party elves here, Mom. There have been little party elves. Thank goodness. Can I put your corsage on? Yeah, where did they find those balloons? We really had a lovely evening, surrounding Mom and Dad with their kids and grandkids. A nice meal, the presentation of a book my dad had written and my sister had had bound that told the story of their courtship. Other family stories were shared, some tears shed. And then later, a text arrived from my cousin that Aunt Mary had died at 8 o'clock that night, right as we were all having our dinner in North Carolina. I like to think that my visit to Mary the week before had kind of opened the hangar door for her to take off, and then as she picked up altitude, she flew over our celebration where much of her family had gathered, tipped her wings to us, and went on her way that night. 
I spent several more days with my mom and dad before returning to my own home in New Mexico. I filmed them releasing their 60th anniversary balloons into the air in the parking lot of their retirement community before I left. I asked the driver taking me to the airport to circle once more around the parking lot so I could pass by my mom and dad and give a second goodbye wave and blow a kiss to them. The next day, my mom checked into the hospital, and in nine days, she was dead herself. A little more about her passage and more with our panel when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. All our episodes, including today's, are online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're exploring ways to find more peace with the process of dying. And then there was my mother. She was lying white sheets there, and she was waiting to die. She said, if you just reach, Underneath this bed And untie these weights I could surely fly She's still smiling But she's tired She'd like to hear That last bell ring You know if she still Could she would Stand up David Crosby and Graham Nash, part of their song, Carry Me. Unlike my Aunt Mary, who had stopped seeing doctors, my mother still seemed interested in pursuing medical answers for her weight loss and lack of appetite. When she was hospitalized for digestive bleeding the day after I left, she was stabilized rather quickly, but then came down with a hospital superbug that required a strong antibiotic treatment. She was clearly threatened enough by her condition that my sister and I made quick plans to visit in about a week's time. Before we could get there, though, doctors announced that she'd beaten that infection, and we all expected her to begin a slow climb back, as she'd done so many times before. My mom and dad called me from her hospital room on my birthday, August 7th. She sounded okay, although a little bit challenged to speak through an oxygen mask. My brother, who lives about 40 minutes away from my folks, was attending to both of them. A couple of days later, my brother had left my mom's hospital room for the night to take my father back to their apartment and to start heading home himself when the hospital nurse called him to say that my mom might not make it through the night 
as her oxygen levels were dropping fast and her breathing was getting more shallow. My brother returned to the hospital immediately. She was breathing but unresponsive, and without heroic measures which my mom had requested in documents that she not receive, nothing would be done to call her back from her path. The nurses asked my brother what my mom would normally be doing at home at this hour of the night. He said, well, watching baseball on TV, her favorite, the Atlanta Braves. So they said, well, switch on the game. And they did so. And within an hour, my mom had passed away. I always imagined that we'd all have been together with her when she died, but my sister had been held up in a Chicago airport that night, and Melissa and I were due in the next day. I cried long and hard into that night and blearily boarded a plane early the next morning. Back to our panel discussion right now, hospice nurse and filmmaker Camila Dare, hospice nurse and author Denis Cope, and hospice physician Corrine Trone, who's heard here first. One of the things that I was thinking about in terms of what, you know, what gives you peace if you don't know, if the inevitability happens and it happened, you know, in an untimely way, is really having thought through the things that were important, like Camille's being able to say she's spoken about it to her her daughters. Um, Since my children are small, it's really about thinking through, for example, what would happen with them, what would happen to support them and their needs that, you know, should something happen to me. And I think really it's the very nitty-gritty practical things a lot of times that once you have thought those through and told people about them or made arrangements appropriately, then there is a certain piece that comes that if something were to happen, at least you would know that piece was taken care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll share a personal story. Um, my folks are extremely practical. They had an answers book, you know, literally a book that they bought and said answers on the cover that had, you know, the finances, the car, the this, the that. But when my mom passed away, we weren't immediately able to find anything about her services. Uh, And so that was a riddle that lasted for a couple of days. But then, sure enough, uh, there was some folded papers tucked in the back of one of the pages in the answers book that hadn't come out that had everything. Uh, It had the hymns she wanted. It had uh, some passages of prose that she thought would be helpful. And the most helpful one actually was this little one that she had copied. Somebody may have sent to her. I don't know. And all it said in her handwriting and pencil on the top was for family. It's attributed to Canon Henry Scott Holland, 1847 to 1918, Canon of St. Paul's Cathedral. Death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away into the next room. I am I, and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we are still. Call me by my old familiar name. Speak to me in the easy way you always used to. Put no difference in your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes we played and enjoyed together. Play, smile, think of me, pray for me. Let my name be ever the household word that it always was. Let it be spoken without effort, without the ghost of a shadow in it. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. There is absolute, unbroken continuity. What is death but a negligible accident? Why should I be out of mind because I'm out of sight? I'm waiting for you for an interval, somewhere very near, just around the corner. All is well. 
this brought great comfort, I know, to my father uh, because he cut it out and put it on his desk and he's been writing letters to us kids every week since we went away to college. And now he signs everyone all as well. <laughs> and, and, and to me, I know that that made just a huge difference to him to know that my mom saw something, made a difference to her and how she thought about it. She probably never mentioned it or showed it to him before. Clearly, she had started thinking about it. I mean, she'd had a lot of medical procedures in the last 15 years of her life. And every time she went into the hospital, she sort of expected she wouldn't check out. But these are things that people, I guess, can look for and start to think about either quietly or openly before that moment comes that can be helpful to everybody. You've all worked in hospice. You've all had families around you in these situations where um, conflict arising over someone's passage at the very last moment of their time on earth. What tips can you give to uh, families who are maybe running into conflict around it? Corrine Trone? Again, I think especially for people who know that there's conflict, so a parent who knows that there's likely to be conflict in a family, anything that can be spelled out beforehand probably helps that process out at that time, at that very challenging time when everybody's individual needs come up in a big way um, to be a little bit more peaceful. But it's a challenge sometimes. Denise? I remember a particular um, patient of mine, and the family was completely divided. There were three or four siblings who were ready for dad to go and he had end-stage liver disease and was bleeding through the varices, the stomach bleeding that happens. And there was two or three that weren't ready to let him go, in particular a daughter. These were all grown children. And he actually chose, he was on hospice, but he chose to go into the hospital and have a a procedure done. It wasn't full surgical, but they go in and they go down and they cauterize or, you know, stop the bleeding. And then he'd start up again. And he did this three different times in order to take care of the daughter that wasn't ready to let him go yet. And it was one of the greatest teachings for me to step back and let the family dynamic unfold. And finally, the daughter got to a place where she said to her dad, dad, you don't have to go this time. I had this other patient, and there was tremendous discord between his his girlfriend, his partner, and his 26-year-old son. He was dying of bladder cancer, and he was one of the angriest people that I had ever met and that his physician had ever met and that had ever been admitted to the hospital. He had quite a reputation. And at one point, he said, I need to have a family conference, and will you facilitate it? I said, sure. So it was he and myself, the partner, and the son. And he just looked at him and he said, you know what? Up until now, I've been sick. But something has changed and I'm dying and we don't have time for this anymore. You're going to have to work out how we're going to all be together while I'm dying. And he just laid it on the line. And so we worked out a plan to where the son would be there or the girlfriend would be there, but they wouldn't have to be in the house together. There's ways to work it. And sometimes there's not. Mm-hmm. We were talking about how every death and every family dynamic and everything around each death is so unique. We can come forward with some ideas and we can respond in the moment. But sometimes you just have to let the trauma and the discord happen 
because that's part of what's going to unfold. Mm-hmm. Camille Adair? I think my biggest piece of advice, um, because caregiving and being part of a family system can be stressful, especially at the end of life, issues have a tendency to surface. And so I always encourage people to really take care of themselves, to take a break, take a walk, eat well, get a massage, um, debrief with their spouse or a friend. I think those things make a huge difference in the way family systems cope if if every individual w- takes responsibility for their own self-care. I think I've seen that make mm-hmm. a huge difference. It sounds like you all would be making the case that we should be teaching about a relationship with death quite early on in our lives instead of waiting till it's on our doorstep. How early on? What might that sound like? How could we lay some groundwork that when young people get into their teens and their 20s, they're a little bit more ready for this? I I would say there would be two things for me. One would be um, nature. I think nature is a great teacher around the cycles of life. And that's a great way to engage children in having an understanding of beginnings and endings and of change. And I also think um, having uh, attending to your spiritual life as a family is another way of, of bringing the sacred into the process of living and dying. Now, there was an example in your documentary. John Monroe Castle, who's a hospice chaplain, was talking about walking in the forests of the uh, eastern part of this country that I have romped in and played in and walked in. And when I'm walking through the forest, I smell the, the deep, deep, wonderful, rich aroma of decay and dying. And I know that there's a place for that. And I know that the place for that is to take us back into life as the new shoots grow and the new forest flora begins to uh, prepare for life again. Well, I think that if we use nature as our teacher around um, the changing of seasons and you think about the vitality that you see in a tree, for example, in the summer and then the way the leaves change color and eventually fall off the tree in the winter. I mean, we think about a human being and if you take a look at the way not only we relate to dying, but the way we relate to aging, I mean, people are getting Botox and plastic surgery, and there's so much that's happening that is age-defying. So not only is this are we a death-defying culture, but we're actually an age-defying culture. And so I think that for family systems, when we can actually, and this isn't an easy thing being in this culture, but embracing the changes in our bodies and talking about them, and um, that we model for the younger generations some pretty powerful ways of being human. There, and I forget what the reference is, but there are four things that mm-hmm. they've identified to be said at the bedside that really clears it. There is, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, I love you. And if you can in some way embrace all of those four in whatever comes naturally to you, then you're present. And what we find being with people who are dying is there is this movement, this natural, for most. I had this one couple where 
he they they had been married 34 years and they said either an hour after they got married or a day after they got married they realized they should have never gotten married and they stayed married for these incredible amount of years had two daughters he evidently had been abusive she wanted nothing to do with him as he was dying she hired in caregivers she went off to her psychiatrist and got her hair done and played golf never interacted with him in the last 36 hours of his dying she was able to go in and sit at his bedside and be with him what transpired why that happened i will never know i know there is an amazing for me sacred energy force that comes in at the end and surrounds and fills the room all i know is that that happened and then i came to visit after the person had after he had died and i made a family visit which we do and the daughters were down from out of town and they said to me i don't know what you all in hospice did but this isn't the same house we grew up in the entire energy in the home had changed there were no words for that there was no explanation other than what comes forward energetically at the end of life. Mm-hmm. But it makes me think that if you could say those four things to everybody after you had lunch with them, um, or every time you park with your family on a routine visit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the way I felt with my mom is that, you know, I couldn't get there to her bedside, but I had no regrets about not essentially covering that territory with her every time I left. So that's a good reminder. Yeah. And I also think there's the reality that we can cover that territory after they're gone because they are, as in your saying here, they're just in another room. Mm. And I think of how George Burns used to go and talk to Gracie every day. Mm-hmm. We can still talk to them and be with them just as is required requested here because they are really available it is only in our western thinking that we think something has been shut off and they're gone this was what i faced with having to join my family in north carolina the day after my mom had passed away my brother was with her when she died my sister arrived before my mom's body was taken from the hospital the soonest i could be with her was about 40 hours after her death as the funeral home arranged a viewing for just me and my partner, Melissa. I'd prepared myself for my mom not to look like herself, and that was partially true. But there was one angle, one place where I could stand and look toward her face, where she appeared about ready to break into a familiar little smile. And Once I recognized that as the best angle, I, I stayed there, and I sobbed and talked to her. I thanked her and said over and over, you did such a good job. You, you did such a good job. I hope you knew that. I, I hope you were happy about that when you left. Melissa, after a while, asked me if I wanted some time alone. At first I said no, but then yes, just a couple of minutes. In those two minutes, I repeated my thanks to my mom and wished that she felt good about her life. I tried to leave several times, but kept being drawn back to that angle where she looked so much like herself. When I finally did leave, on about the fifth try, I wanted to walk quickly with Melissa out of the place so as not to engage with the chatty funeral director who tried to say something like, let us know if there's anything else we can do. I wasn't ready to let just anyone infringe on that space that will forever feel like my last moments with my mom on earth. I really didn't feel like she was all that far away. Kareen Trone? 
Thanks. Yeah. I was thinking also about this piece that, you know, humans are inherently resilient. There is a resilience there that means that we can get through even the hardest times. And and sort of knowing that even as you're in the deep depths of things can sometimes be helpful. That, you know, the sun does come up the next day. Sometimes that's the craziest feeling, in fact, is that everything looks so normal on the outside when everything is so totally changed inside. But that engaging with that fact that the day, you know, comes, every new day comes, can actually help to move forward. Things Must Pass from George Harrison, always a favorite of mine, and it actually had become a favorite of my mom's as well. You can hear much more from my conversation with our hospice guests, Camille Adair, Denise Cope, and Corrine Trone, and follow links to both Camille's film Solace and Denise's book Dying a Natural Passage, all at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, Seasons Rotisserie Bar and Grill in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.